so we've been studying the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I don't know how everybody's doing keeping up. Um, it's, there's a lot in that book. Um, it's a lot to cover. And this morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 17. A passage that if you're, if you're working through the study guide you would have encountered. Um, there's, there's a huge section of Deuteronomy that, that is just a set of, I call it law and order. Everything from appointing judges to how you decide marriages, um, deal with murders. There's a, there's a great, there's a great line, um, to appoint judges to decide between, uh, two kinds of homicide. I just, I'm like, I'm saying like, really? Two kinds? Isn't there just one kind? The guy's dead, right? I mean, it's, um, but differentiating, there's all this, there's a hierarchy of how everything, how you're supposed to appeal to authority. You start with your local judges. Um, which are appointed for, for judgment. The, the Hebrew word is mishpat, um, and they, they, they judge, make decision. That's, that's the word that's actually um, usually used for judgment or, or reasoning. Um, and then over them, if you couldn't make a decision with them, there's kind of a higher majesty um, in the priests, and the Levites and the priests were distributed throughout the kingdom of Israel. Um, they had a number of cities that were given to them, um, and everybody reads that and they go, okay, so they're being provided for. In fact, the medieval church used that as the basis for abbeys owning large pieces of property. Um, but in reality, what it was is you never wanted to have a Levite or a priest too far away because you needed somebody to adjudicate law. Um, so they were kind of the appeals court. Um, and so they were the ones that made decisions. And they made decisions on all kinds of things. They made decisions on things as simple as were the, were the latrine trenches too, far, too close to camp. I'm not kidding that. That's actually in Deuteronomy. Um, uh, all the way up to, um, did is it is it a sexual assault and the guy should be stoned or is it a legitimate marriage? I mean, those kind of decisions. And they and they they dealt with um, they dealt with uh, people wrongfully accused and they they had ways of deciding things. Um, there was a, a whole process that that class of people was involved in. Um, and the Hebrew word for for priest is Cohen. Um, and uh, Cohen, it, it seems to have a sense uh, of a a person who stands in the gap, a, a divide, right? So we talk about a priest being somebody that you know offers sacrifices for the people, but there was also this case in which a priest was more or less kind of a uh, a person that stood in the gap between people as well and passed judgment. But the highest appeal court in the the land was the king in Deuteronomy. Now we've we've mentioned this. Um, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, there is no mention of a king. There's no positive mention of a king of Israel. But Deuteronomy uh, is written down the road a little bit. Now, it's still the words of Moses. These are words that Moses spoke and were being carried by the people of Israel as judgments, as, as rules, as governing. Um, but they were kind of... Um, they overlap with Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but they're also a little bit discreet. And in their particular context, they're taking what Moses had to say and they're applying it to their particular situation. And in their particular world, um, the people of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, had been founded around 1000 BC by King David. Now, there was a previous king, Saul, um, but he's kind of a bum. We don't count him. All right. Um, he's the Martin Van Buren of presidents. Um, he's just kind of there, but he, he nobody really knows who he is. Um, which, by the way, did anybody know the name of the president that came from New, New Hampshire? 
good job. I was going to be very disappointed if nobody could mention that. Um, so, uh, but uh, he's it's Saul. Just he's not that great of a, a king. He's more of like a, a chieftain. He doesn't really know what to do. David establishes a kingdom. He's he's crowned or, or he's anointed. And uh, you didn't crown people in those days. You anointed them. Um, and he was anointed king first of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and then a few years later anointed uh, the king of the rest of the tribes of Israel. The the kind of large org, uh, organization family organizations of Israel. I'm not going to get into all the details of that. Then his son Solomon is likewise uh, anointed first the king of Judah at Hebron, and then he's anointed the king of Israel. So they both have two anointings. This is a very common thing. It's actually a very Egyptian thing. Um, and, uh, and, and so they, they do this. And then Solomon reigns for, so David reigns for 40 years. Solomon reigns for 40 years. Then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, or Rehoboam, um, he is anointed king of Judah. But when the tribes of Israel come and ask him what they're, he's going to do, uh, with them, he takes some really bad advice. He tells them he's basically going to turn them into slaves. And they rebel and they follow another guy, a guy named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, um, which is one of the greatest patronyms ever. What's his name? Nebat. Um, I don't even know what it sounds It just sounds, I mean, it just takes, it sounds like taking a bat to a knee. I, that's what it means. Anyway, um, so um, anyway, Jeroboam then establishes a kingdom. And that northern kingdom just becomes an absolute mess. Um, for for about 200 years, it is just a complete disaster. Uh, king after king is overthrown or assassinated or burned alive or um, or I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy stuff that happens with their kings. Um, and that 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 kingdom right there is my is my Old Testament specialty, that Northern Kingdom, um, and the 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 prophets that minister to them. Uh, but Deuteronomy is written. Um, I mean, I, I believe I wouldn't take a, a, a bullet for this, but I believe it's written after the fall of that kingdom in 722 B.C. There's a king in the north and king in the south um, named Hezekiah uh, who leads a uh, revival. Um, the scriptures indicate that the prophets of the north come down and join uh, with Hezekiah. They they abandon this fallen kingdom in the north. They come down and they join with Hezekiah. Um, there's there's a, a, a moment in Deuteronomy. Um, there's a moment in Deuteronomy uh, we talked about earlier. We talked about uh, the two mountains a few weeks ago. We talked about Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the the two judgments, the two law codes that were put up on these mountains. And the prophet Amos, if you ever want to know who the prophet Amos is, the prophet Amos prophesied during the fall of the king, the northern kingdom. And he actually, the, the sense of this is, and there, this happens in Amos 6, um, Amos stands at the crossroads of those two mountains and he says, you, wanna, you have a grievance with God, take it to the mountains. Because that's where the commandments are. That's where the, the law is. You had the law of God and you abandoned it. And so the people are migrating south. The prophets are herding them south uh, to Judah. Um, and so we get this law code. And again, this is not written at this time. It was written by Moses centuries before, and yet it had particular importance to them at this moment. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now that's a quote um, from 1 Samuel. Um, 
You may indeed set a king, or it's a, a, actually First Samuel is probably quoted Deuteronomy, but you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, I want us to read that line together. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Who picks the king? God. What is the people's job? The people's job is to set the king over you that God has chosen. Right? That's their job. Their job is not to go out and find the best candidate. Their job was to set the king that God had chosen. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but, but I mentioned that guy Saul. The people of Israel wanted a king, wanted a king, wanted a king. God says, fine, here's exactly what you want. The greatest king you could possibly have. Saul stands head and shoulders above everybody else. He has this appearance of humility. In the end, he is a complete and utter failure. Nothing Saul does is right. His, own, his sin and his failure wind up costing the lives of, of good men, a lot of good men, uh, including his son and his brother, um, because he chooses, actually multiple of his sons, he chooses uh, the wrong path at virtually every important decision as a king. Um, and so then God anoints David to be the king and David is chosen by God, by the prophet or the seer. Um, Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He meets with David's father, Jesse. Jesse brings all of his older sons ahead. David is the youngest of the sons. He's the one that God chose. There's a great line there where it says that God looks not on the outer appearance, but on the heart of the inner being of the person. Um, so when you indeed, when you set a king over you, whom you Lord, your God will choose, he's saying the God, the king, the right king was the king that God chose David. Now, David's family ruled the southern kingdom of Judah from 1000 BC until 600 BC for 400 years with one brief interruption um, by an incredibly evil woman named Athaliah uh, who tried to wipe out their line, but God miraculously provided um, they ruled that land for 400 years and they maintained their genealogies for another 600 years until the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is of the line of David. You can see that in Matthew. Um, he's a descendant of David. Um, so the Lord will choose your king. All right. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king. You may not put a foreign o foreigner over you who is not your brother. So let's read that line again. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. What's a foreigner? What, what's a foreigner? Don't say somebody foreign. All right. Somebody what? From another country. What did you say? An outsider. What did you say, Peter? Not of this land. Okay. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is, the, the Hebrew word actually is, um, it has a sense of someone of otherness. Of otherness. Of, of uniqueness. Um, of difference. Um, how, many, how many times you ever, now, okay, so anybody under the age of 20 probably has never had this problem. How many times you go to a vending machine with a, a hand of quarters and dimes, um, and as you, you have exactly enough money to get whatever it is that you want to get, ooh, Cheetos, E10, right? 
Um, and one of your dimes is Canadian. <laughs> take it! Take it! Take it! Take it! Right? Something that is exotic, something that is other, something that is foreign, something that looks good but doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Now, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word here, like I said, it means something other. It's the sense of otherness. Um, there's no, in particular, there's no connection to the land. Um, uh, Peter mentioned he's not of this land. There's no connection to the land. And the land was important to the people of Israel because it was the subject of the covenant of God. That's why the land was important to them. The, the land that they ruled was important because it was part of the covenant God made with Abraham. So how could someone outside of the covenant understand how to lead the people of the covenant? Doesn't that make sense? Now... One of the founders of the, the main northern empire, a northern dynasty, the North, two, two major northern dynasties are called the Omrids and the Nimshites. All right. Yes. All right. They're both named after the fathers of the prominent kings. Uh, Ahab, his father's name was Omri. Um, and uh, Yehu or Jehu, his father's name was Nimshi. Why are they named after their fathers? I don't know. Um, but they are... But Omri was, uh, he was a usurper who took over the throne 873 BC. He took over the northern kingdom. He was a general. He, uh, the main king was killed. Another general usurped authority. Omri then took his army up, defeated that guy. The guy actually burned his house down on inside, on top of himself rather than fight Omri. Then, then another usurper rose up. Omri had to go up and conquer him. Omri was a conquering general. His name is not Hebrew. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. His name is Amorite, Ahumri, um, which is the sacred land of uh, the people of Adad. I know that you're really super excited about that. Um, but it's a very ancient non-Israelite name. Um, and, um, and Omri is not an Israelite. Don't set up a foreigner. Because Omri was the one that introduced the worship of Baal and Asherah and all the false gods to the northern kingdom really stabilized that that worship um so he's not one of your he has to be one of your brothers he has to be one of you because he has to understand the covenant you bring in a very strong powerful person because you think they'll do a good job you went out and headhunted the best iron age king you could find and said do you want to be king for us but he doesn't understand the covenant why is that so important um, because what is a king who doesn't understand the covenant going to rely on to run the country? His own power, his own might, his own ability, his own acumen. Whereas a king truly in the spirit of David who understands the covenant, he's going to rely on God. That, by the way, is Hezekiah. You can read about him uh, in Second Kings and the way that Hezekiah stands up to the greatest world power of its day, of his day. Um, because God says they will not come through these walls. And, and he stands and defies them. Uh, by the way, Hem, uh, Hezekiah uh, built a, uh, a water tunnel uh, to provide water to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we have the, the construction workers uh, inscription on that tunnel um, describing when it was built uh, under the reign of Hezekiah. It's called the Siloam 
uh, inscription. It's a tremendous archaeological record. It's worth looking up on Wikipedia after church. Um, so uh, he says he says he has to be a brother. All right. He 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 can't be a foreigner because he doesn't understand the covenant. Then in verse 16 only now he has four things he's not allowed to do. He must not acquire many horses for himself. Um, what's the big deal about horses? I know. They're big, long, ugly faces. They're so cute. They're like penguins if they were four-legged beasts of burden. Um, why, why horses? Now, we tend to think, okay, because people ride horses, that's not what they did. People in this time did not ride horses. They rode donkeys. Horses are for chariots. Omri's son Ahab appears on the, uh, I know you guys are going to be super excited about this, the Kirk Prism, K-H-U-R-K-H. It's an inscription by a king named Shalmaneser V. Um, He had the largest chariot force in the region. 20,000 charioteers. Um, Omri's son Ahab devoted his entire kingdom to building charioteers. And then got absolutely demolished by the Assyrians at the battle, at several battles, the Battle of Karkar. Um, he, uh, so this, this thing about acquiring horses is about military power. It's about projecting strength. He says, don't waste your time with somebody who's going to spend all their time projecting strength. And he says, um, must not acquire horses or cause people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. All right. So this phrase horses is really it's standing in. Uh, it's it's metonymic. Um, that's a great word for you. Um, it means it stands in. Um, it's standing in for military power in general. Um, and the temptation of the people of Israel, the temptation of the tribe of Judah was to appeal to Egypt to be um, their military might, their military support. Um, one of the prophets actually describes, he says, why do you appeal to Egypt? They're a broken reed. Um, I think it's Jeremiah, but I could be wrong. It could be Isaiah. Um, then I'm going to be completely wrong because I'm not looking at it. Um, but he says, he says, don't let them take you back to Egypt to acquire horses. What does take you back to Egypt mean? To go back into bondage. Don't let him sell your future for the needs of the present. So first, we're not worried about it. We don't want a king that's a a foreigner because he doesn't understand the covenant. But even a king who is a part of Israel, even one's a brother. Number one, be careful for somebody who projects power. Number two, be careful of somebody who's willing to sacrifice your freedom and sell you into bondage for projecting power. You guys could make millions of applications on these. I'm not touching it. Since the Lord has said you shall never return. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. All right. Lest his heart turn away. This is not about the ladies. This is not about Wilt Chamberlain. Okay. The acquisition of wives is the acquisition of treaties with other nations. Don't. Have a leader 
who gets in the bed, it gets in bed with the enemy and then calls them your friend. Don't follow the leadership of somebody who gets in bed with the enemy and then calls them your friend. Uh, this is very, very common in this, this day and age. This particular period, um, Iron Age 2, marriage alliances were a great way to get rid of a traditional enemy so that you could deal with some new enemy. The Egyptians did it all the time. Um, they would marry one of their daughters, one of the Pharaoh's daughters off to some Hittite prince and tell the Hittites, oh, we want peace with you, peace with you. They'd make peace. They'd beat up somebody else. Then they'd immediately turn on the Hittites and fight them um, and said, ah, your prince was a bum. All right. Um, they, and, but marriage alliances. OK, now acquire horses, connection to Egypt, acquiring wives. Oh, Bible scholars amidst us. Does this sound like any one king we know? Solomon. David's son Solomon did all of these things. That's why the kingdom was split. Right? He he um, he built horses. He built. You can read about it in Second Kings or First Kings. Um, he he acquires horses. He builds stables. He makes an alliance, a marriage alliance with Egypt. Um, he uh, he acquires uh, way more wives than any man should ever, any sane man should ever come close to. Three hundred wives, seven hundred concubines. All right. Um, so and and when we look at this, what are we looking at? Okay, again, we're talking about a brother. So we we dismiss foreigners altogether, but then we're talking about a brother, somebody who who should understand the covenant, should understand the needs of the land, all of those things. We're talking about somebody. Be careful about somebody who who wants to project power and authority, who's willing to sell us into bondage, who's willing to to make alliances, uh, make alliances and call the enemies friends, have split allegiances. And then the last line, he says, lest his heart turn away, nor the fourth thing, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Um, Solomon is described in this way. He's described as being unbelievably wealthy. Um, so uh, projection of power, bondage, alliances, and depending upon financial resources. A leader who sits here and, and acquires financial resources for himself. Now, in this day and age, you didn't have a treasury department. You didn't have an independent, independent. Um, you didn't have an independent branch of the government that took care of the checkbook. The, the, the reserves, the cash reserves of the kingdom were the king's to spend as he wished. He acquired for himself. He didn't have to take care of the people. Um, he was the 1% of the 1%. So we're warned about leaders. You can take any kind of application you want. You can apply that to Christian leaders, to government leaders, to city councils. I don't care. People driving your bus. There's all kinds of applications. But now look at the check and balance against this. What is the check against this abuse? Verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. In other words, from this day forward, every king of Judah, when he becomes king, he will sit down as a child. He is to copy out the book of Deuteronomy, the entire thing. He's to have it approved by a priest and then he's to have it read to him every single day. Why? Why? To remind him to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
to hear over and over and over again how the people of Israel were saved not by the might and power of an earthly king, but by God. He is to have it read all of his life. All right? It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his life. By the way, this is not a scroll. This is a monolith. This is meant to be inscribed in his presence. You say, that sounds ludicrous. That sounds like a lot of work. Asher Nasser Paul II, king of Assyria, at his palace in Nimrod. You can actually see a panel of it, the Museum of Fine Arts. The pan, at his palace in Nimrod. He had inscribed 650 times. I am Asher Nasser Paul, the vicar or the, the vice regent of uh, Asher, the God. I am the ruler of the universe. 650 times. Inscribed, inscribed, inscribed. You're going to compete with that kind of propaganda? You better have the law of the Lord written on a monolith in your throne room and in your house and in your palace. And you read it and you have it read to you over and over and over again. Because you're competing with a 24-7 365 day a year campaign for the sovereignty of everybody except the God of Israel. You want to be a king, guys? You follow the law of the king. Ladies, you want your man to lead your house. He follows the law of the king. Now this might sound weird, but I, for all of my computer technology hand copy huge passages of scripture all the time why because i want to know the law of the king i don't want to just read it off a computer screen i want to sit and have to meticulously copy it i copied the old testament the way in hebrew notebooks filled with me copying in hebrew even words i don't understand copying 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 and then going back and studying and reading this is not because I'm some great spiritual leader. It's because the Bible says that if you want to be a just king, if you want to be a just ruler, if you want to be a just husband, if you want to be a just pastor, you better keep the word of God in front of you. For them, it was a stone monolith inscribed with this book in their throne room that was being read to them every day. Why? Verse 20. Verse 19, it shall be with you. You shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all of the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. What's the second commandment? The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all, or with all your heart, your soul and your mind. The Shema. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Love your neighbor about as yourself is not about exalting your neighbor up to your level. It's about bringing yourself down to theirs. You can take that and chew on it. That he may not turn aside from the commandment. Which commandment? The great commandment. The Lord your God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That's the great commandment. He inverted them. All right, but it's still there. His heart may not be lifted up his brothers. He may turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left 
so that he may continue long in his kingdom or literally in his reigning, he and his children in Israel. Our attitude toward others and our attitude to God and our continued journey as Christians. You say, this is the law of the king. Are we not called by Peter a royal priesthood? If an earthly king is called to this standard of obedience to the scriptures, how much more the church of the king? The true king. You say, I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to get into that. Fortunately for you, that's what church is all about. You say, I don't know how to pray. That's okay. They weren't commanded to pray. Prayer comes later, but they were commanded to study the word. To study the scriptures. How do we keep a check and balance on all of the competing voices all of the competing sovereignties in our world. How do we test? Last week we talked about false prophets. How do we test against false kings? It's all right here. How do we evaluate the failures of kings? How do we look at them and go, okay, that, that person needs to be restored. By all means, they need to be restored to fellowship with Christ. But while they're in the process of restoration, I need to find somebody that, I can, that we can follow. Right? We need a, a, not just, a, not just a, a, a blank spiritual thing. We need, we need leadership. The church needs leaders. It needs men and women to be leaders. And in order for us to be Christian leaders... We have to become first and foremost men and women of the word. You don't have to acquire everything. It doesn't say that he would have all the knowledge every day, all the time. It just says that every day he's in the word. Every day the scriptures are being read. Every day we're engaged. Every day we're checking our hearts to make sure that we're not being lifted up above our brothers. Every day we're checking our direction, our relationship, our vector toward God. So we're aware that we are following that key commandment. We're not turning to the right hand or the left. And as we begin to turn that we can adjust, that we have a standard to adjust to. Praise be to the Lord. That by the resurrection of Jesus, we do not do this on our own power. If God has called us, his spirit has gifted us, and we are able to do it. We're able to do it. For some of you, that's reading. Uh, I had mad respect for Lynn Swenson. If you haven't met, if you didn't have a chance to meet Lynn, you, you, you missed out on some of the most circuitous and long stories you will ever endure, but so worth it. When he got to the end, you're all like, yes, it just took three weeks for him to get there. Literally. I'd be like, all right, Lynn, I have to go do stuff. Cause I've been here for four hours. I'm going to put a pin in this, come back and um, tell me what happened. Um, but, um, but Lynn every day for his entire adult life, after becoming a believer, he read new Testament, old Testament Psalms every single day. And when I asked him why he did it, I mean, is his eyes failing? He's got three different pairs of glasses. He's trying to read the Bible. He's like, oh, that's the wrong pair. That's the wrong pair. Look around for a third pair. <laughs> um, 
I asked him why he do it. He says, he said, because I wouldn't know how to be a Christian without it. Just a simple, amazing answer. You want to be a follower of Christ? You want to know what God has for you? Get in the scriptures. We need leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, we need leaders. As Bedford Road and as the church with a capital C, we need leaders. And we are competing with showmen. We are competing with charlatans. We are competing with false prophets. We are competing with movements. We are competed with, competing with so many different things. And everybody knows that, you know, I almost made an Arlo Guthrie joke, Ray. Should I make it? In order for it to be a movement, how many people have to be singing? It's three, right? Three people come in and sing a line of Alice's Restaurant Massacre. Turn around and walk away. <laughs> you don't remember? Oh, Ray, come on. You bailed on me. Alice's Restaurant. All right. Anyway, it's a protest song. Don't worry about it. Um, but uh, but uh, he says, if there's three people walking to the draft board, sing a line of Alice's Restaurant, turn around and walk away, they may think it is a movement. That's what it is. The Alice's Restaurant Anti-War Massacre Movement. Um, it's a 60s thing. Don't worry about it. Um, but uh, we are not interested in those things. We're interested in the scriptures. And we need, we need leaders. In order to be a Christian leader, you've got to put down your ego and pick up your Bible. The only way you'll know whether you're going to be a Christian leader is if you do that. The only way you'll lead your family is if you do that. The only way that you're going to find your way out of whatever hole you're in now. If you put down your shovel... You pick up your Bible, you find how God wants you to do it, instead of how you want to do it. you join me in a word of prayer? Father, once again, we come into your presence and in your place, and we seek your word and your truth. So often I look at myself and say how much I don't meet the ideals that we're putting there. You've called us to submit to your word, to honor it in all we do and say. And now as we finish our worship coming to this table, receiving the elements that represent the very real presence of Jesus here in the church. Break down the hardness in our hearts if it exists that keeps us from Him. Break down our desires that detract from our call as a royal priesthood. May we in this moment as we prepare, as we think, as we pray, may we lay down the things that are barriers between us and you and your word.